This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If we thought 2018 went by fast, 2019 going just as fast. We're midway through January. We are 124th of the way through the year. I'm trying to do the math in my head. Can't quite get it that fast. What is that? 4% maybe of the year. It's flying by. Hopefully you guys are doing real well on your goals that you've done for the year. If you've not, the good thing, you still have 23 out of 24th left. You have 96% of the year yet to be able to conquer your goals, to be able to go out, achieve something, make a list of everything you want to do and start checking it off every single day. I found that to be the best thing. I have an app called To Do. I literally put a bunch of things on there every day and it's like, all right, check, check, check. It's crazy. We're checking things off. We are the last episode of season four of I Could Never Be Here on the Popcorn Talk. We've had an incredible season. I mean, just last week was the biggest week that this show has ever had. We made international press talking with Richard Schiff on Monday, then brought you an extra episode on Tuesday with Kat McNamara. Thank you, Teen Vogue. Thank you, Just Jerry Jr., a couple other outlets for picking that up. You guys want to be able to check out those episodes. Go to YouTube. Check those out. They're all there. I Could Never Be whole playlist. Go on your playlist for your podcast. Be able to subscribe, check it out. We have several dozen episodes on there now to be able to just better your life. That's what the show is all about. Again, it's free content. We're giving this to you for free. We just want to be able to better your life, be able to help you out, be able to show you that the people that you see on your TV screens or that you listen to their music or you're, you know, seeing them uh, in person and you all, this person's a big shot. They, you know, they don't know the struggles that I'm going through. That is absolutely not the case. They've lived on couches. They've been scrounging around for food, looked at the bank account and seen not a lot of money in there. And today we're sharing another incredible story from an incredible person who just has a grind and a mentality for achieving success and tackling his goals unlike any other. And just an amazing story, an amazing story of what he's overcome, what he's achieved, and what he continues to achieve. If you've been part of this show before, you know I always start the show with some advice for a better life. And so today... That advice is that time moves very slowly in the present and very fast in the past. And I've told this to countless people over the last year, especially. When you're going through a tough time, it seems like it drags on. You're in a a series of turmoil. You're in a relationship that's not going well and you broke up. And man, it just seems like every day is just sand in a timer just going really slow. And that's the way it is. It's not actually going slow. It's going the same time as what everything else goes. But when you go maybe six months out or a year out, you're going to look back. It's just going to be a blip. It's just a blip. So time moves very slowly in the present, very fast in the past. So think about it of the big picture of it might seem like it's going slow, but keep grinding, keep moving forward, keep tackling again every single day, checking things off the list. And then in six months and a year, when you look back, Wow, you can look back on what you made it through, what you overcame, and that foundation that you set up for the future. Today's guest, wow, again, one of the hardest workers that I know, the things that he's accomplished. Uh, he was a nine-year NFL veteran. He was a track star, a football star at Oregon. He's now a motivational speaker, has several successful companies. He just had a big rally this weekend, finally able to have him in the studio. Very grateful. 
JJ Burden. Welcome to the show. Hey, what's up, Michael? It's great to be on the show. Appreciate the, you know the opportunity to be on here and share. Nice man. And I see in the background of your shot, you know, your nine years. You play for the Chiefs. You got the jersey hanging up there in the back. Big weekend for the Chiefs. Big weekend for the Chiefs. We've we've been waiting for this, I guess, opportunity since I was last in KC in 94 season. But, um, yeah, we're really excited. I think things are lining up well for the Chiefs to finally get to the Super Bowl after all these years. They're one of four teams left. What do you think the odds are? I mean, what percentage chance you give them to go all the way to possibly win the Super Bowl? Well, I tell you, Michael, I've been calling it, I think, since week six, you know, because I – I've been watching the Chiefs over the years since I was there, and they've had some really good years. But every time they would get to the playoffs, it seems like they would get a lead, and then they would get complacent. they get comfortable, and then the opponent would come back and win in the end. But this team is a little different. They've got more of that, you know, that never-never-quit attitude, that resilience, that grit, where they play all the way to the end. So I've been saying, this team's going to go all the way, and I, I believe – they will definitely be in the Super Bowl playing against the Saints. Ooh, the Saints. <laughs> wow, not picking the Patriots. We got some Boston people here uh, at After Buzz and Popcorn Talk. Might fight you for that. But, you know, either way, the best four teams, I think, in the league are definitely it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline what's left now do you how do you watch the games differently having played having been on the field knowing what kind of the players are going through knowing the the play call strategy how do you watch games differently and what do you see that other people don't unfortunately I still watch the game like I'm playing it you know like I'm, I'm analyzing the defense constantly because for nine years this is what I had to do you know besides watching film at work. When I went home, we were watching film. I was studying my opponent. I was always trying to find their weaknesses. So it's almost annoying because I sit there on every play and I let, okay, what's the defensive front? What's the coverage? What's the technique? And and it's kind of, um, everyone finds it pretty interesting when they sit down and watch a game with me because I am basically analyzing it like I am playing. Now, are you vocal too? Because I know you got you got several kids, you got a wife, you guys watch the game together. Are they like, come on, JJ, we just want to watch the game. <laughs> yeah, they they don't like watching the game with me because I get into it too much. And, you know, I have to like I have to pin my wife down sometimes and say you're gonna watch this game with me. You know, so it's it's that it's that emotion I still feel when I watch the game because because I know what everybody's going through. I know if a, if a player makes a bad play, I know the pressure he's gonna deal with the next day. If a player makes a great play, I know how he's gonna feel for the next day. It's just. It's unfortunate. That's just kind of how that game is. When you're playing at the highest level, you almost live and die by every single performance. Yeah. What the, what's the name of the Eagles wide receiver who dropped the pass yesterday? Yeah, I think it was uh, Jeffries. All yeah, Jeffries. Alshon yeah. Jeffries. What, what do you think Alshon Jeffries? For people who don't know, there's two minutes left in the game. The Eagles are driving down six. They score a touchdown. They win it. Ball goes straight through his hands and gets intercepted. What do you think Alshon's going through today? Well, when I heard his interview, I, I knew it was the classic, hey, you know, we're going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. But at the heart of the matter, 
it's on his mind. It's on his heart. It's driving him crazy. I mean, he had a really good year, but all he's going to think about is that last play, that error, and it'll haunt him during the offseason until he oh, begins. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it'll stay with him and until he begins practicing and, and playing next year. And it's it's unfortunate because there's so much pressure to perform at that level. And what they always focus on is your mistakes. So he'll go into the offseason wondering, like, oh, my goodness, you know, does this mean that they're going to cut me? They're going to get another receiver. I mean, he'll just he'll go through what I call the mental gymnastics the mm-hmm. whole offseason. Now, is that good in a sense that it will inspire him and drive him? I mean, do you, do you even look back? I mean, maybe another way to ask it. Do you look back on mistakes that you made and how long do you hold on to the, what is the right amount of time to hold on to those to inspire you versus listen, you got to put it behind you. That was one game. It was one catch. That's not who you are. Yeah, exactly. And I believe he's a professional, so he's not going to allow this to cripple him to a point that affects him negative all off season. He will use it as motivation. And I remember one year when I, I, you know, I had a year that wasn't that great. I knew I could play better. And I, I wrote down whatever it is I had done wrong. I wrote it down and I looked at it the whole off season and it just motivated me to work harder, to train harder, to study more. And, and I believe he will use that as motivation because this game is all about what have you done for me lately? Mm. So he wanted, he wants to make sure that those guys, that the organization forgets that mistake as you go into his off season training. We're going to be pulling up uh, some highlights from your time playing. You play with, I think, four teams. I mean, do you miss playing? I mean, is that is that feeling of, man, I wish I was still out there. I wish I was still, you know, facing teams every day and the attitude and the, and the teamwork that goes in the locker room. How much do you still miss it? Well, there are aspects of it that I miss. I mean, I miss the, the camaraderie and stuff, the team aspect of it. I I missed Tuesdays because that was payday. I definitely missed that. <laughs> um, but, you know, to be honest, I don't really miss playing. I don't ever look at a game and say, I wish I was still playing. Because like you shared in my intro, I was a track guy at Oregon. I was never trying to play in the NFL. That was never my dream. I, I was a little guy in, in high school, and everyone said I was too small to play Division One, And I got a full-ride scholarship at Oregon in track. So the second year, I went and looked at some of the football practices to see if they were right. And I just thought, I can do this. And I, I, beg, I literally begged Coach Brooks, Rich Brooks, to just give me a tryout to make the team. And he did. And it was just kind of like the rest is history as far as college. But what happened was I was drafted late by the Cleveland Browns. And here I'm excelling in track. I'm getting ready for nationals. I qualified for the 1980 Olympic trials in a long jump. So that's where I was focusing. Mm-hmm. But I tore up my ACL ligament in my left knee Oof. at the Cleveland Browns rookie camp. So you know me. I'm very positive. Positive people see the bright side of everything. And so from that moment, I just said, well, let's give the NFL a try. So it was like it was never part of my plan. So when I got there, Michael, I felt privileged. I didn't feel like some guys do this entitlement thought, you know, where like the game owes me something. I felt Mm -hmm. privileged. So I took every day as if, you know, it was a privilege. But when I realized I played nine years, I'm thinking, JJ, you you played nine years. (laughs) The average player plays 3.2 years. You qualify for retirement because that's after year four. And I thought, you know, I'm done with this. Um, I was always planning for that transition. So for me, it was easy to make the transition. And now to this, I don't sit there and regret. I had my time. I had my opportunity and I was 
prepare to move on. Do they help? Does the NFL help players with that transition? I mean, because you're saying three years. I mean, three years is like that. It's so yeah. quick. How much did they, I mean, back then or now, help players with that transition of like, listen, you got to be ready for something afterwards. This is only, even if you play, you know, 10 years, 15 years, that's still so many years left. Absolutely. And back in my day, they did not help. They did not help players transition. And, you know, and that's why there's so many um, horror stories of what has happened to players once their career was over. Now they do a very good job of it. And they start from day one as they prepare the rookies, you know, as they begin their career. And, and when they retire, there's so many opportunities, continue your education, you know, get involved in other industries, whether it's um, becoming a reporter uh, uh, or, um, you know, business in a business world in some capacity. But there's great programs. I just was I, I think I'm, I was kind of a little bit of a different breed back then because I was always thinking about life after football and what I was going to do when my career was over. So year four or five, I started networking with people and, and getting connections and things we talk about today, engaging mm-hmm. with people and expanding your network. And that's what I did. And my fellow wide receivers always thought I was a little out there, but <laughs> they understand to this day that I had a plan, you know? Yeah, you laid the foundation back then, and now you've built on it uh, really well. Like you're saying, multiple businesses, you you know, travel the, travel the country doing speeches and helping people, literally thousands of people. Uh, and we're going to be able to talk about that and your attitude kind of in founding that. I want to be able to talk about, like you said, that incredible story at Oregon where, Oregon, where you go there not to play football and you work up the courage to be able to try out I want to go way back. What is your earliest memory of playing sports? I mean, was it football? Was it another sport? <laughs> That's a good question. Actually, the first sport I ever got involved in was gymnastics. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, in, in grade school, I was really, I loved gymnastics, flipping and jumping and somersaults. And, and I, was, I was involved in that. And then it was baseball. Um, and I was pretty good. But as... I grew up in the in, uh, inner cities of Northeast Portland, the hood, and every night, Michael, we were outside having races. That's what we did for fun. We lined up to see who was fast. And when I realized at a young age that I was gifted with the, with the, the talent of speed, that's kind of how I gravitated towards the sports I got involved in, track and field and football, because it's just something about when you can run faster than other humans and they can't do anything about it. You know? <laughs> Well, you remember the feeling? I mean, you're in the neighborhood and you're you're beating kids. You remember that? Was that feeling just like a, yeah, that's right. This yeah. is what I'm capable of. That's, you know, that's an attitude thing. Yeah, it was. It was very, um, it was exciting because I was like the fastest kid in the neighborhood. And we had the whole, you know, this whole area. And kids used to come to my neighborhood to race. Me. They would come to race me. And, and, um, and it got to the point where I was giving guys head starts and stuff, but but I'll never forget one night I was blowing everybody away. And this kid, his name was Bobbles. And Bobbles was a break dancer. And he's walking by about nine at night. And he's, you guys are racing? And, and he goes, yeah, I want to race you. And I'll never forget, this kid blew me away. And the first thing I said was, dude, why aren't you running track? Or why? He goes, oh, man, I'm a dancer. I'm a dancer, you know. <laughs> and I never forgot that. And, and later on, I, I met I found Bobbles on social media and I told him that I still use that 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 story as a way to teach others that 
You know, there's always somebody out there that's hungrier than you. So you better make sure that you're always doing what you need to do to maximize your opportunity. Was that that person who the next year, the next two years after that, you realized that it humbled you and you were like, I need to train because there's always that person out there that I might not know that I'm going to come across? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think it prepared me because when I got to high school, I, I hadn't, I kind of stopped growing for a while and I was the smallest kid. And I remember everybody started catching up to me and they started, they were faster than me. And I remember when I tried out for the track team, they had six of us run off and the top four were going to run the four by one relay. And I took fifth and it was the first time where I, I ran into that, I guess the realization that, man, there's some people out here that are better than me. I'm not the guy. And I better get to work if I really want to, you know, do something special. But it caused me to really step up my game from a training standpoint. And eventually I started to grow, grow and then I caught everyone. I passed everybody up to that. <laughs> what was your, uh, what times were you running in high school? Well, I was, you know, I actually long jump. I was a long jump okay. high jumper and I, I ran, um, I ran those events. I was probably more like a 10, probably 10, six, you know, but okay. I was a much better long jumper. I was, you know, 20 in high school, I jumped like 24, 10. And wow. I remember I had the second best jump in the nation as a high schooler, but uh, that was really my passion. I just love track and field. It was never about football. It was always about track. Were you looking then obviously at the next step of where can I go to college? Where can I be able to take this to the next level? Yeah, it kind of went like this as the football season concluded, because I did play football and I was the number one wide receiver in the state. But at 5'9, 133 pounds, every college that would come through would just say, You're mm -hmm. too small to play Division One. You should go Division Two, Division Three. And I heard that enough to where now, okay, you're telling me I can't do it. So there's that, that extra drive, that extra motivation to prove them wrong. So I just said, You know, I'll get a scholarship and track. And let's see what happens. And so as the college, the track programs were recruiting me, every single Division One school that came through, I said, what do you think about me trying football one year? And all of them said no, except for the University of Oregon. They said, you come to our school, you run one year, we'll do what we can to help you at least get a chance to walk on your second year of Oregon. So that was one of the reasons why I ended up going to Oregon. Now, Oregon was still like a, a good school, right? I mean, they're, they're very, obviously very good at track. That's where Nike is located right outside uh, in Oregon and Beaverton, I think. And then, you know, good football program too. Well, at the time, they weren't really known for their football. They were definitely known for track and field. And, and the year I got there, the year or two before, they were one and nine. But there was kind of like a transition that was starting to happen because my first two years, we were like five and six, five and six. They were six and five, six and five. And Oregon's been on this run ever since. Yeah. So I, I like to say I was part of the You definitely, of you definitely led that charge. Yeah, absolutely. What was, I mean, for you, so your freshman year, how did you stay focused on track and not football? Or was football still in the back of your mind? Well, <laughs> It was in the back of my mind. I didn't really know when I was, I had this plan, but I just didn't know when I was going to execute it. But I wanted to fulfill my promise to the track coaches. I would focus on track my first year. And I remember it was uh, during spring ball. Uh, the weight room was near the football practices. So the track team was supposed to be lifting weights. And one time I snuck out of the weight room to go watch practice. 
because I wanted to see if Division One athletes are so much bigger than mm-hmm. me. And I sat there in the stands, Michael, and I'm watching practice. And then the next day, I did the same thing. And I came to the assessment. I said, you know what? I can do this. These guys are not much bigger than me. And so the very next day after that, I stood on the football field watching practice because I thought someone's going to kick me off the field mm-hmm. or they're going to ask me why I'm here. And so I, I stood on the field the whole time. At the end of practice, Rich Brooks, the head coach, comes all the way down the field and he says, Burden, I've seen you out here. Why are you out here? And I go, Coach, I want to play. He goes, do you really think you can play back 10 football at the time? I said, Coach, I know I can. And that started the discussion. And next day I was in his office kind of trying to convince him. And he finally said, okay, you can come to camp this fall. We'll give you a shot. And what, what was your argument? Was, I mean, were you did you plan out of like, okay, here's my point A, here's my B, here's my C? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I am. I was like, I got yeah. first, I got to go watch the practice. Second, I got to get in front of the coach. I got to have a conversation with him. Third, I got to sell myself and convince. And so once he says yes, then if I go to camp, I got to show out. I got to I got to take advantage of it. And I'll tell you, the very first day of camp, and, and this kind of tells you how determined I was, the first day of camp, I go and I'm looking at the depth chart, and there's 15 wide receivers. Oof. And I was number 14. And most people, as you know, would look at that and go, okay, why am I here? I'm wasting <laughs> my time. They're not going to give me a shot. All I saw was, man, how fast can I move up the depth chart? That was my whole mindset because they didn't know how bad I really wanted. They didn't know I had the grit and the determination. I was willing to do anything. And once practices started, two weeks later, I was backing up two seniors and I was the number two wide receiver. Wow. Was it just, was it an attitude thing of just no one, no one's going to stop me? Yeah, it, it was pretty much that because. Physically, when they, they said, you're too small to play Pac-10. But see, I already knew I had the athletic ability. What they didn't know was I was willing to go across the middle and make the tough catch. I was willing to go hit that linebacker. I was willing to do whatever it took. And that's that was, you know, that I think was what separated me from a lot of receivers because not all receivers are willing to make that catch over the middle oh, and know they got to get clocked by it's, safety. Yeah. Not all receivers are willing to go in there and block a 240-pound linebacker. But when they saw that I was willing to do whatever it took, and then I was also capable of making the big play, it, it truly – they started seeing me as not just a 5'9", now 150-pound receiver. They started seeing me really as a, a true – college division one wide receiver where did that attitude of like almost having like a chip on your shoulder and like ah i gotta prove these people i'm gonna be able to where did that come from for you was that something that was instilled at a young age from your parents or something that just you just picked up over time i think it was just something that innately was a part of me because i've always been the little guy in grade school i was the little guy in junior i was the little guy so i always had that chip over on my shoulder that i had to you know, prove, prove everyone that I was just as good as them. And, and I had some cousins that were very, very athletic. They were all taller than me. And I was always trying to, you know, compete and stay up with them. So um, it just seems like throughout my life, whether it was grade school, junior high, high school, even in the NFL, I was always constantly trying to prove I belong and prove that I was just as good as everyone else. So, um, yeah. Prepping for the... 
NFL draft. What was your mindset? Did you expect to get picked? Were you thinking, oh, I might have to walk on in the NFL? Well, no, I never even, you know, dreamed I would be in the NFL. And I remember my senior year at Oregon, I, did, I was a starter. I didn't have a great year. I messed up my ankle. I missed five games. I literally had, I think, 28 catches. I had one touchdown. One touchdown my senior year. So I'm thinking, those aren't great stats. And um, but one day I get this letter. I was invited to the NFL Combine. And I'm like, what is the Combine? <laughs> and as you probably know, the top 300 you know, college the prospects the are invited. So I go there. And I remember going there. And I'm thinking, like, what am I doing here? I'm sitting at a table with, like, Tim Brown and Sterling Sharp and all these amazing wide receivers. So I go through this experience and I'm thinking the whole time, I am wasting my time. Why am I here? But, but I tested well. And when I went back home, I just thought, whatever, let's just focus on track. But I remember the day before the draft, my coach, Rich Brooks, literally forced me to get an agent because I just said, I don't need an agent. I'm not playing the NFL. And so my agent, Frank Bauer, the first day he says, you know, you need to stay home. You might get drafted. I'm like, coach, I said, Frank, I'm not getting drafted. I'm going to class. So I went to class, totally ignored the first day. And then the second day of the draft, Frank is like, you've got to stay here. I think you're going to get drafted. And I'm like, no, no. He goes, just stay put. So finally I said, whatever. I stayed in my room. And about an hour later, I get a call. And it goes like this. I'm like, hello. And they said, hi, is JP there? Yes. This is head coach Marty Schottenheimer for the Cleveland Browns. And I'm like, who is this? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> He's like, this is the head coach. We just drafted you in the eighth round. And I'm like, is this some kind of joke? He goes, no, we just drafted you. We're excited you be in wow. Cleveland Browns. I was so shocked. I was so shocked. But as it settled in and I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. So, yeah, I never expected to be drafted. And when it happened, it took some time to really accept that it truly was happening. Was that a mentality switch that immediately of like, oh, well, it just got like another, it just got real again. Like it just now I, I, I'm, you know, the talent level is going up. Like when you're playing in college, maybe your first time when you play in college, you're, oh, wow. Okay. The talent's big. Then you kind of get used to it. You start excelling. Then when you draft in the NFL, you're like, oh, this is a new league. Yes. But I didn't really, I guess I didn't really, I didn't realize that until I got there because I, I still wasn't thinking about, you know, the superiority of these professional athletes. Cause I was, in this mode of I'm not going to play, I'm not going to play, because I I wanted to run track. I wanted to see if I could make the Olympic mm, team. I didn't mm-hmm. even want to play football. Even when I got that call, Marty Schottenheimer is like, you know, we'd like you to come out early. And I'm like, I got to finish nationals. I got an Olympic trial. So it was interesting how it all happened, because when I, when I left in the middle of track to go to the Cleveland Browns rookie camp, when I tore my ACL, that's when everything shifted. That's when everything, when I started focusing on the NFL, and that's when I started really looking at the talent, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, these guys are a whole nother level of athleticism, but having that first year on injury reserve for the Browns, and just watching practice, and just learning, that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me, because during that season, that's when my belief started to change, and I started to realize that, you know what? I can play in the NFL if I really want to. How long did that season feel when your goal, when you, like you said, you get injured and you realize, man, I really do want to be out there. And yet you're on injury reserve for an entire year. You're not actually being able to be out on the field, much less practice if you're really hurt. How long did that 
season feel? Well, it, it was, it's, it felt like forever, but I knew I wasn't ready. I knew that I needed time to watch and observe and, and just le- learn the nuances of the game. And I, I, it was such a privilege to just sit there and watch and not have the pressure because I, I truly did need it. So I embraced it. I embraced that one year. But I tell you, when I went through my first training camp, because there's such a difference when you're watching, but then when you're out there, and I remember my first training camp, the first time I'm going against DBs, man, they were throwing me around like a rag doll. I mean, it was like, oh my goodness, this is different than watching from the sideline. Now I'm actually playing, I'm in, I'm in action mode. So again, it, there was another learning curve there once I was actually in practices and going through, uh, going through the plays. From a team perspective, what is their goal for players in training camp? Obviously, it's to get players ready and you know to be able to play. But is it really to get you mentally ready, physically ready to bond? I mean, from their perspective, what is their goal that they're accomplishing with you in training camp? The goal is this, because they have 90 guys that come to training camp. Mm-hmm. 53 men will make the team. So when they go into camp, they pretty much know who 45 of those guys are. So it's a combination of things. It's identifying who those last eight players are going to be. You know, your starters, those guys are really just getting ready for the season. Mm-hmm. And then everyone else, we're just sitting there kind of battling to show, A, we're good enough to play, but also you're auditioning for the other 31 teams as well because they see the film and when guys are cut, they're picking up players. So – as a young player, you know, I was in that, I was that odd guy out, you know, and then as a veteran, I was that guy who was just really preparing for the season. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of depends on what stage you are in your career. But, but yeah, the reality was they already knew 45 of those guys. Are the 45, you're talking, you know, then there's 40, I'm trying to do the math here, 90 guys coming in, 45 roughly. You got like 45 players competing for eight spots. Are the 45 guys, is that, a, is that very, you know, everyone going at each other or is that everyone understanding and trying to help each other? Or is it very contentious and dog eat dog? You know, that's a good question. You know, actually it's, it's kind of like a fraternity. Everybody was still willing to help each other. Okay. I was always impressed with that because you're trying to fight for this job and you're battling mm-hmm. with these other guys. And you know, it, there was a lot of team unity. And so if you got 15 wide receivers there, we were all willing to help each other. We were all willing to support each other. So, um, yeah, it was no dog-eat-dog because if you're good enough, you're going to produce. You're going to get your opportunity, whether it's there or with another team. Mm-hmm. One thing I love to talk with athletes about is training. You know, the, the preparation that goes in long before game day. Because any game day is one day. It's a couple of – NFL game is three hours long, you know, with commercials. So how many how much time you actually spend on the field versus the other six days of the week that you're doing the training, that you're putting in uh, the effort to be able to go on game day and give your best. What was training like in the NFL? How many hours are you doing? Are you doing two-a-days? What was it like? Training, this is the part where I was like, hello, this is what it's really like. It's a job. <laughs> it's not like just show up for two or three hours like you did in high school or college. But no, you, you'd go in at 6.30 and there was a lot of structure, which I love, which is something I, I teach about and what I, I try to you know, implement in my life today. So you're going in at 6.30 and you're doing special teams meeting or then you're doing team meetings and then you're doing position meetings and then you're, you know, you're studying film and then you're practicing and then you're 
watching the practice on film after it's over. Then you go home and you study your plays and you you uh, you prepare for the next day. It's a full day. Yeah. It is 6.30 to 8 o'clock. And you think about that. That's every day during the season except for Tuesday. Tuesday is the player's day off. And, and if you have an injury, though, you have to come in. And, and I think that's what a lot of fans don't realize. There is so much. Not There's a lot of physical preparation, but there's a lot of mental preparation, too. Because at that level, everybody's a great athlete. Everyone's talented. Everybody's hungry. So there's a very thin line that separates the athletes. And a lot of that has to do with the mental part, the mental capacity to be able to play at the highest level, make split-second decisions, and process information in a game on a play where you can still execute. And that's that's really the line that, that separates the good from the bad or from the ones who play on Sunday versus the ones who's watching the game from their sofa on Sunday. Is that the same with players who really uh, excelled in college but didn't excel in the NFL? Or you had players who maybe didn't do that well in college but then obviously blew it away in the NFL. You got players, you know, like Tom Brady. What did he, he didn't really do that much in college. Now in the NFL has majorly, obviously, uh, personally, second best quarterback of all time, Aaron Rodgers, number one. But then you have other players who, you know, were busts, who did really well in college and didn't do well in the NFL. Why is, is that the men- just mentality? Yeah, you, ju- you just hit the nail on the head. Um, there are some great athletes I would see coming into camp. I mean, faster than me, more athletic than me. Uh, either they, A, did not know how to prepare and really become students of the game, uh, or B, they could not handle the pressure. Because when you're in a game and you got maybe 10 plays or 20 plays or 40 plays, and you, you have to perform at the highest level on every single one of those plays. And I would see guys as self-destruct you know, in games um, and just really not know what to do. So in the NFL, they don't give you very much room for error. So that's really the difference because every guy that's on that roster, even the 90 guys that come into camp, they all can play. They all have the ability physically. But it's the guys that, again, that can perform at the highest level from a mental standpoint, process information, and then execute. Tom Brady is a perfect example. You know, you have to be a student of the game. Mm-hmm. Myself, when I got to the NFL, athletic-wise, yeah, I had that. But I was a student of the game. I would come in, Michael, and memorize all four of the wide receiver positions. You know, most wide receivers come in and they learn one or two. I would memorize all four because if somebody got hurt, I wanted to be the guy that they could say, let's put J.J. here, let's put J.J. there, and it created more opportunities for me. How do you train mentally for the pressure that you face on a Sunday? Ooh, that's a good question. You know, for me, I always use a lot of the visualization training. You know, I always visualize myself in any given situation or, um, you know, just I always visualize myself making the big play. I always prepared myself mentally so that if they call X comeback, I'm going to run 18 yards. I'm going to make the catch. You know, if it's fourth and goal and we need a touchdown, they're going to call fade. I'm going to give the mood and make the catch. So so when the moment happened in the game, it wasn't too big for me because I've already seen myself making the mm. big play, making the big catch. And so for me, that's what's always worked. So that no matter what the situation was, it's just the moment wasn't too big for me. Seven days between games, you know, whether you can leave that, you can look at that as seven days leading up to a game. You can look at that as seven days after a game. How much time in there is spent 
preparing for one week, having the game, assessing what happened, but being able to move on and realize there's another game coming. And I think I asked this also with how it relates to life, because a lot of people, you have something coming up and you can prepare for it. And then there needs to be some time afterwards to reflect on it, realize what you did right, realize what you did wrong, but then saying, hey, need to move on to that next thing. Yeah, for us, we had that general rule. Basically, when the game is played on Sunday, the very next day, we immediately watch the game film. And let me tell you, one of the more pressure-packed aspects of the NFL was watching the game film the next day. Especially if you lost or if you played bad, it was not a pleasant experience. But they would spend that next day analyzing the plays and your errors and what you did right, what you did wrong. We would be graded on each play. But once Monday was over, then it was focusing on the next game. You couldn't stress over what you did the week before because your attention had to be on who you're playing the next week. And as, as pros, we were very good at that. You know, we didn't worry about if I'm playing on Sunday, I didn't worry about what errors, what mistakes I made the Sunday before because I knew it was about producing, you know, in that current game so that, you know, you, um, you can produce the results that you need. Hardest practice. Is there one that stands out to you of a time when, man, you really almost wanted to quit? <laughs> hardest practices. You know, the hardest practices I had in my career was back in high school when we used to do triples. I mean, I don't know triples. What, that, what is that? That's three, oh, three practices. That's, yeah, three practices a day during the summer in August, and you're doing a full pass two hours and a half hours in the morning, at lunch, and then in the evening. Oof. Those were probably the most intense practices. Uh, when I got to the NFL, it wasn't they the practices weren't too bad it was, it was more just dealing with the pr- pressure it was all about the pressure and being able to handle that because many times michael you only had one or two shots to make a good impression and there were times in my career where i was the free agent i was the extra guy that they brought in who wasn't supposed to make the team and i could feel that but i did my best to ignore it and make sure that uh, I still perform at the level I needed to. JJ, one more question before we uh, wrap up here. But what what is the biggest lesson that you learned in the NFL that translated over to the companies that you have now, the motivation that you give? I know you have uh, your book, you know, talking about eight ways to achieve success. What is the biggest lesson that you learned in the NFL that translates over? This lesson that I learned was probably – Really understanding what it means to be disciplined, to be disciplined. Um, Because in the NFL, we're men, we're pros, but someone's not always looking over our shoulder, reminding us to do this and reminding us to do that. So it took a lot of discipline to do the action steps, to do the activity, to do the things you needed to do in order to perform on Sunday. You know, my favorite way of describing discipline is the ability to do what you need to do when you need to do it while no one is watching. Mm -hmm. So think about that. And in the business world, same thing. There are, you know, daily method of operation or activities, things we need to do in order to be successful. Do you have the ability to motivate yourself? Do you have the ability to hold yourself accountable? And that's where I see in the business world where some people struggle. And I try to, you know, share that message because for me as a pro, there's no way you can play in the NFL nine years and you don't have some degree mm-hmm. of discipline. 
Yeah, a lot of people want to want to seek success. Don't seek success. Seek discipline, and you'll get success in a variety of industries and in a variety Absolutely. of areas. Well said. Fantastic. Well, JJ, thank you so much for joining us. I want to be able to, to shout you out. Uh, JJ Burden on Twitter, at JJ Burden on Instagram. You're always posting motivational stuff, giving tips on your Instagram stories, which are fantastic every single day. Everybody, go check him out. Go give him a follow. Show him some support. Again, we're thankful to be here on the Popcorn Talk Network. At the and thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it. Uh, keep up the good work. Dude, I appreciate that, brother. At the Popcorn Talk, Instagram and Twitter. At the only MC on Instagram and Twitter for me. Guys, again, end of season four. This is our last episode. We're so thankful for you joining along for the ride. So thankful again for last week and the press that we had uh, all over the world. Again, go inspire someone. Go up. Look all the past episodes. YouTube. Go on Apple Podcasts. Be able to like, comment, subscribe. Go be that light. We're introducing it. We're giving you guys all that you need to know. Now it's your turn. Go out, be a light, help someone out today. We'll see you back in a month for season five. We'll see you next time. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network.